What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to or watching, as the case may be, Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things, we contemplate them, we turn them over in our minds, and we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my, cogita- my cogitations much troubled me, my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, we're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. And today we're going to talk about two approaches to evangelism. And I started thinking about this several years ago uh, whenever we took a trip to the Creation Museum. I can't remember where the cre- is the Creation Museum in Ohio. Anyway, doesn't matter. We were at the Creation Museum and Ken Ham happened to be there. And he was doing a lecture. I didn't want to go in sitting on the lecture, but some of the folks that I was with did. So I walked with them to the lecture hall and we're a little bit late and folks were kind of milling in, but I caught a few minutes. Hey, Facebook user, I have checked in, and I think, I I don't know who that is, but I think I know who it is, and if that's who I think it is, that means then that we have our chat situation fixed. We have been having difficulty with the chat. Awesome. That's Ted Knight. Great. Ted, I'm glad you're able to comment again. I have been on the horn for about the last 20 minutes with Restream. Something had happened in the, that that got the filters off in the chat and the people who were watching in a Facebook group, like we have the Christianity now Facebook group, they, their comments were not able to, to, to tune in and, or to tune in to, to show up on the, on the chat overlay. Therefore I couldn't see them. Now it, it was really, it was kind of a serendipitous uh, situation because I think it pushed a few people over to the YouTube channel, which I would love for everybody that watches this to go to the YouTube channel. But if you're, if you're watching on Facebook, God bless you. We're glad you're here. And I'm just glad that this seems to be fixed. And the cool thing about it is I'm glad to have access to customer service and have figured that out that, uh, I can talk to representatives at restream and they can help me get stuff done. I was quite frankly a, a little disappointed and and bearing no small amount of anxiety and other feelings I guess I will say because there were two or three of you that you've communicated through your actions you enjoy the show but you couldn't comment on it and I'm I'm not entertaining enough to watch without being involved in it. I don't think, I think if I was going to watch me on a live stream, I'd want to talk to me or else it wouldn't be very, a very good live stream. Anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. Maybe that wasn't so convoluted. You didn't get the intended message, but we're so glad we've got this fixed. We're thankful to restream and Ted, I appreciate you stepping in and, and, uh, and, and throwing a comment down. Now, Ken Ham, he said, we've got to preach a different gospel. Now, that made alarm bells go off in my head because I got a verse here uh, from the book of Galatians that, that kind of speaks a little, it, it speaks a little bit negative about preaching a different gospel. Listen to it. But though we are in, or excuse me, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the gospel of Christ unto another gospel. 
which is not another, but there be some which trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. Now, you got a fellow standing up before a large crowd says, we need to preach another gospel. And I'm like, well, wait a second. So my ears got peaked. Now, he did that to kind of catch the audience's attention. He's not talking about preaching another gospel as in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about so many times in modern-day evangelism, we, we start with the way Peter started in Acts chapter 2 when we really need to be doing what Paul did in Acts chapter 17. And I've talked quite a bit about Acts chapter 17. In fact, there's an article on Substack called Ancient Wisdom, Modern Insight, Arguments for God's Existence in Paul's Mars Hill Sermon. And I'll briefly run down that very, very quickly. You've got the ontological argument, or excuse me, you've got the cosmological argument, you've got the ontological argument, you've got the teleological argument, you've got the religious argument, you've got the moral argument, and you've got the aesthetic argument for the existence of God all embedded in Paul's discourse to the folks on the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And so what, what Ken Helm was saying is, Gone are the days where you go out on the street and you meet a random individual and you might have disagreements about doctrine, about theology, but you can you can come down on, in other words, you're appealing to the same authority. Here's the thing. It is a logical fallacy to appeal to authority, argumentum ad authoritatum. In other words, we'll take, I'm so happy Ted Knight's here. I'm going to call Ted Knight out and use him as an example. So let's say that, that I have this particular viewpoint that Ted Knight also has. And I'm talking to Jason Goldtrap and Jason Jason Goldtrap disagrees with my viewpoint. Instead of logically articulating why my viewpoint is correct, I just say, well, Gold Trap, don't you know Ted Knight believes the same thing? That's an appeal to authority. Now, that's not a holy, W-H-O, whole, that's not a holy bad thing, because what if Jason Gold Trap and I have already agreed that we both consider Ted Knight an authority? So that's, that's not anything wrong with that to appeal to authority if both parties agree that the authority to which they appeal is an actual authority. Neil Abbott says, Ted Knight from the very, oh, Neil Abbott, I did not put that together. I I love the Mary Tyler Moore show. I watched it growing up on Nick at Night. No, Ted Knight is a a friend from uh, Arkansas. He grew up in Herman Junction and, uh, yeah, you ought to you ought to holler at him. He he puts out some really good posts. He's he written a, he wrote a book about um his uh his journey with the devil's disease or his experience with the devil's disease. Anyway, um but my point is, so if 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 Jason Goldtrap and I are arguing, 
And instead of me logically laying out the reason my argument is correct, I just say, well, Ted Knight agrees with me, and that's what he said. Then Jason might be like, well, you know, I agree that Ted Knight is an authoritative source, so that carries some weight. But Jason Goldtrap would be just as valid in saying, look, that's an appeal to authority. And as much as I respect this man, that doesn't make you right because he agrees with you. It just means y'all agree. So then we we have to order between Jason Goldtrap and, and I, and me, I suppose, what is the authority to which we would appeal? Well, we're going to appeal to the Bible. And then even then we might not agree fully, so we have this conversation where we we hammer out a, a commonality between us. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's debate, that's argument, that's rhetoric. That's how it works. And two people ought to be able to mat- be mature enough to come together and hash something like that out. Now, hello, John Exum. In fact, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so excited about the live stream and about the fact that we got this working. I forgot to say hello to anybody. Um, Terry Crooks, good morning to you. John Exum, good morning. Uh, Jason Goldtrap, good morning to you, although I've already called you out and used you as an illustration. Uh, Scott Beck, good morning to you. I feel like I'm missing somebody. I'm missing somebody. Diana Harden, good morning to you. And I think that's it. All right. Good to see everybody. This always blows my mind how many people we get in on just a Cogitations podcast when it's nobody but me. We always average around 20 folks, and, and it's actually growing and growing and growing. And I've been looking at the analytics on Restream and stuff like that. And um, it's not uncommon for us to go, you know, a week or two where we're averaging 25 people in the live stream. Now, that's not braggadocious. There's folks that can that can command way more of an audience than that. But to me, that's huge. I, I, would, I would fly around the world to go talk to a group of people that's 25 folks strong. I don't know about y'all. I'd fly around the world to go talk to a group of people that's 15 or 16. I, in fact, if, I, if I've done my due diligence and there was one person and it cost $10,000 to get to them, and that's the only way I could get to them to study the Bible with them, I would, I would try to raise the money and, and put my own money in. Anyway, back to the podcast. Um. So what we're going to talk about today is this idea of what what and now Ken Ham is a is a Baptist. He's he does not preach God's scheme of redemption the way you and I would preach it. He believes that Jesus is coming back and setting up an earthly kingdom, which I think that is beyond ludicrous. Um, but I just wanted to let you know from where I got this this idea. Uh, winning an argument does not determine truth. A good lawyer can argue that Thursday is Saturday, but my proof is in the calendar. The Bible is our proof, and man's opinion isn't worth a hill of beans. And and the 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 last man man's opinion is not worth a hill of beans. You are correct. I tell you what. Let me let me take this time. This is something very very interesting that Paul told Timothy, and I want to give y'all an illustration of what I mean about appealing to authority, and if if two people who come together, if they agree that an individual is authoritative, there's nothing wrong with appealing to that individual as an authority. Um, it's in Second Timothy chapter three, 
Let's see. Yeah, verse 14. Well, let me just do 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read here. But evil men, seducers, shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou, in other words, Timothy, you need to continue in the things which you've learned and hast been assured of. Listen to this. Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Now, I've always considered that, well, I I always considered that to be speaking of Paul, but I don't think he's speaking of himself. Because in the very next verse, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and correction and instruction in righteousness, so on and so forth. Was Paul saying that you need to appeal to an earthly authority? No. But what he was saying, and I believe I've got a good illustration for this. In 2014, I heard Dan Winkler preach a sermon, and in it, he, he, he the, the body of his sermon was illustrating and proving a point with which I vehemently disagreed in the moment. But I thought about it some, and I'm like, well, you know, he makes sense. And then I went to one of my teachers. I happened to be in Memphis School of Preaching at the time as a seminary school. And I went to one of my teachers. Now, those of you that are listening to this and not watching, you're not going to get this, but I'm going to do this. So I went to my teacher, and I said, Brother so-and-so, what do you think? And now, I wasn't being nefarious. I just didn't have access to Brother Winkler, but I had access to my teacher. And in my mind, well, my teacher endorses Brother Winkler because Brother Winkler was invited to speak on the Memphis School of Preaching lectureship. Therefore, a member of the faculty of the Memphis School of Preaching would endorse or at least consider what Brother Winkler had to say. So I wasn't trying to gossip. I wasn't trying to stir up anything. I just I wanted to know, and I wanted to work it out in my mind, and I, I needed somebody to help me do that that, quite frankly, knew more than I did. So I went to my teacher, and I said, what do you, what do you think about what, what Brother Winkler said in his sermon about X, Y, Z? And this is exactly what he did, folks. Okay, so he said, he goes, it's Dan Winkler. I didn't understand that, and, and I still may have it wrong. And I don't know how many more years I have to wait before I call this brother up and ask him if he remembers that and what he meant. But here's the way I took it. It doesn't matter. So from the teacher's perspective, it doesn't matter whether or not I agree with his take on that topic. It doesn't matter if I agree with what he said. I trust Dan Winkler. Dan Winkler is one of the foremost expositors of our age. And this is how he exegetes that passage of Scripture. What are you going to do, argue with him? Are you even qualified to argue with him? Well, the answer is probably no. Now, that doesn't mean you're not qualified to question him. That doesn't mean that you can't know as much as he does. But he has spent hours upon hours upon hours upon hours studying and preparing that lesson, and a first year, not even a full first year, but a, a, a Memphis School of Preaching student that hadn't even gone through his first full year, 
barely getting his feet wet in serious Bible study, I'm not going to go up and argue with Dan Winkler, especially if my teacher says, well, what do you do? It's Dan Winkler. I think that's what Paul meant. Look, you need to remember, not only remember what you learned, but you need to remember from whom you learned it. Something to think about, and it's something to consider. For instance, you know, you listen to me. Y'all folks listen to me a lot. We've built a type of rapport. So when I speak, you're you're gonna you're gonna run what I say through a good faith filter. Even if you even if I say something that triggers your flags and you go, well, wait a second, I disagree with that. But you know what? It's Tony. Now what I mean by that is I don't want you to take everything I say right out of the front of my mouth and just assimilate it into your life and not question it. First off, that's not fun for me at all. I want to be challenged. I want to be questioned. But I also want to be treated with love and respect. And I want to treat you with love and respect. And I want you to consider, well, look, this is Tony. I disagree with that, but it's Tony. So I'm going to chew on it before I just write him off as being wrong. In that situation, there's nothing wrong with allowing what a trusted man, woman, a human says, and and letting that stand as as authoritative for the moment. Again, don't be so stinking open-minded that your brain falls out. But don't be so skeptical that you can't learn anything. Anyway, really appreciate the comments there. Dan Winkler is a smart brother. Yeah, he is. Danny Mentor. Good morning, Tony. Have a dentist appointment, so we'll have to watch the video later. Well, that's not the time for the dentist appointment. The dentist appointment time is 2.30. I'll see myself out. All right. Uh, His dad, Wendell, did a great work for the Lord as well. Yes, he did. Uh, Wendell Winkler, um, again, I can't remember. I think it's in in my DVD collection got a really good sermon on prayer. He may have wrote a book on prayer. I can't remember. But Wendell wrote a lot of a lot of um workbooks. Couldn't think of that word. Wendell wrote a lot of uh, Sunday school workbooks and stuff. All right. So, back to the meat of the podcast. This two approaches to evangelism. Well, I'm I'm oh, you know what I need to do while I'm talking here? I'm, I need to share the. I need I need to share the. Uh, okay. Where we're at. Navigating the crossroads of faith and reason. View the post. Share. I said share. Copy link. Now I can copy the link. Well, I said I can. Where's the paste button? Hold on. There it is. 
All right, there's the article that I have. Um, hey, that's it. Search the scripture to find out whether or not it's true. Well, you know that, and that's Acts seven, y'all. The noble Bereans. What? Oh, that is Acts. Is that Acts seventeen? The noble Bereans. Have I lost my ever loving mind, y'all? That's got to be Acts seventeen eleven. The noble Bereans. That's so terrible. I should know that off the top of my head. Yeah, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so. Folks, you had an inspired man preaching and a bunch of people that were not inspired were able to ascertain the truth of God's word from an inspired man by the truth of God's word that was already written down. That's something to think about. Um, all right. Now I tell you what else I'm going to do. I am going to, uh, I'm going to share this other article because this is one that I wrote. And it's been a while back, but this, this is the article about ancient wisdom or ancient something, modern wisdom. Well, paste. Folks, there we go. I need to, I need to be a bajillionaire so I can hire an assistant to do all this stuff on the fly. Uh, Ancient wisdom, modern insights, one article, and then navigating the crossroads of faith and wisdom is the other. Okay, and uh, I believe you'll enjoy these articles. But this. Yesterday, when I when I did the rerun episode of the of the cogitation of the We Talk Truth work, yeah, ancient words, yeah. Uh, John Excellence says now I have that ancient words song in my head. Um, yesterday in the We Talk Truth, um, uh, I shared a We Talk Truth podcast. We had a rerun instead of a live stream. I had some stuff I had to tend to. Um, I said something that was quotable, and I need to go back and write it down. It said it's about the thirty minute mark where Peter and Paul appealed to two different authorities. Peter appealed to the authority of Scripture. Paul appealed to the authority of God. Now, ultimately, an appeal to Scripture is an appeal to the authority of God because who gave us Scripture? But from the audience's perspective, I do media for the church. Man, that's awesome. Uh, I I do... um, Sorry, my brain still had your comment in my head. Um, From the audience's perspective, it's two different sources of authority. All right? Now, when I say the authority of God, I need to go back and listen to the quote. It's been five years. Uh, I should have wrote it down. But the the reason you're getting the podcast today is because of what I heard me, because of what I heard me say yesterday from five years ago. I guess Paul appealed to the the authority of logic and reason. So from the perspective of the audience, it's two different authorities. Think about this. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the article and I'm not going to read the article, but I'm going to go down here to the application for modern evangelism. So we set the tone. Peter's audience. Think about this. Peter's audience were people that believed in the scriptures. They were like the Bereans in that, they believed that the Old Testament writings were inspired by God and therefore authoritative. So when Paul was able to preach to them, 
they said, Hey, wait a second. You're saying that you're saying that you're, you're, you're saying that Isaiah 53, you're saying that that's Jesus. Oh, wow. You're saying that the branch, that's the Messiah. You're saying that Isaiah two, Joel two, and Daniel two are all talking about the establishment of the church. Well, let's go back and read this. And they went and read for themselves, and they checked to see if what Paul was saying made sense according with the understanding of the Scripture that they had. And evidently it did because they obeyed the gospel. Well, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter was talking to people, although they were unbelievers, they believed that the Bible was inspired. And if you meet somebody today, my suggestion, and I do this with the charismatic people. So you believe that there are folks in the world today that can lay on hands, that can heal the sick, that can raise people from the dead, they can, they can do miracles. Yes, yes, I do. All right, and I hold up my Bible. Do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is infallible, and that it cannot be wrong? And I know that's saying the same thing twice. Well, most of those folks will say yes. And then my response is, remember that you said that. Now, do you believe that the Bible is true to the point where if the Bible taught something that you have empirically concluded, in other words, experienced, and it denies your empirical evidence, would you discount the empirical evidence and believe the Bible? And most of them go, well, what do you mean by that? If the Bible taught you and, and, and explicitly stated that all oak trees have red leaves in the springtime and leaves the color of fire, and you can clearly see that they're green, would you believe the Bible or would you believe your eyes? Well, if they're honest, if, if they're honest with the thought experiment, they'll say, well, I would have to discount my eyes. I would have to assume that my eyes were wrong because that's how authoritative the Bible is. Now, that's kind of an absurdity because the Bible is not going to do anything like that because we can clearly see that oak trees have green leaves in the spring. Why am I focusing on this? Well, whenever you talk to a charismatic, it always comes down to, well, yeah, but I've seen a miracle. Okay, I don't doubt that. I'm not going to doubt your quote-unquote lived experience. Well, you've seen a miracle. That's fine. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says the age of miracles are over and that there's no more men or women on the earth that can perform miracles. So if you've seen a miracle, then do you deny your lived experience or do you deny what the Bible says? And most of the time, that's where you lose them. But the point is, you still have a foundation to go back to. You're still going back to the Bible. In other words, you don't have to convince this person that the Bible is true, that they, they already know, they already believe that, like you do, that the Bible is true. Hello, Sword and Pearls, good to see you. And, and that's a good segue into, into getting some of these comments. Um, Brandon Wilde says, I do, oh, I read that, I do media for the church. Uh, Jason Goldtrap says, 18 years of Sunday school, I can 
18 years of Sunday school can be obliterated by a 10-minute lecture from a college professor. Children, as well as their parents, must encourage children to memorize Scripture. Tweens should be able to apply it. Teens should be able to know how to defend it. And all of this is backed by solid family and regular Bible study. I taught a clean, I taught a, I taught a, I taught a teen class for three years. My biggest issue was not with the adolescents, but with the parents who did not bring them regularly, nor probably made sure they did their homework if you assigned any. Um, and yeah, there's a, oh yeah, I'll relate a story, uh, with that whenever I was very, very young, I mean, we're talking fifth grade, sixth grade. So I, I went into kindergarten when I was four. So that means I would have left kindergarten when I was five. So we'll start at five. So first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I would have been, I would have been in the spring of my, of my, of my sixth grade year. I would have been six years old. That don't sound right. Kindergarten. Oh, duh. Six years. Okay. I just messed up. I started counting from zero for my age, y'all. I can't math. So if I was five, so five, six, seven, eight, nine, I would have been 10 years old. Like I could have been six years old in the fifth grade. That's nuts. Anyway, I was 10 years old uh, coming out of the fifth grade. So I can't remember exactly when this was, fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere along in there. So I was 9, 10. I wasn't 11, I don't believe. But I had a mind for abstract thought and ideas. And I would read the uh, encyclopedia, the world book. I had a set of world book like every kid my age did in the 80s. There must have been some world book encyclopedia salesman that went around to all of us, all the people in the country there because everybody and every household that I knew had a set of world book encyclopedias. And I ain't going to lie to you. I kind of missed them. I would love to find, I would love to have a set, you know, just, just for nostalgia. But anyway, in fact, as I grew up, I, I, I my parents bought me a set of encyclopedia Britannicas. Uh, they were really nice leather bound and included the books, the 50 great books of the Western world. And I mean, I read all the time and talking about, 18 years of Sunday school can be obliterated by a 10-minute lecture. All of my Bible learning was obliterated by all of that science material that I was reading from a secular source unsupervised by my parents. And they didn't know any better. They thought, hey, it's a world book. Hey, it's Britannica. Hey. Anyway, well, I asked my Sunday school teacher one time. We were having an open forum in the class, and I was we were all asking questions. I asked him, well, I just don't understand. If everything was created in six days and God created and rested on the seventh, then what about our teachers and stuff that tell us that the earth, and I didn't use this language, but that the earth is multiplied billions of years old and that there was billions and billions of years of evolution. And I was able to rattle these things off and I was able to argue it effectively enough for a 10 year old. But the problem is, my Sunday school teacher at the time, this was still back in the day where some folks thought dinosaurs were fake, were made up. And I even heard in my youth that, well, you know, God created all those dinosaur bones in the earth to confound 
the wisdom of man. And they would quote, quote 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 1. And I'm like, I don't believe that. I believe there's actual dinosaurs. And I'm so thankful to Kyle Butt and Eric Lyon for writing that book, Dinosaur Delusion. If and because that's why it's so near and dear to my heart. Because if I if I if again, if I was a gajillionaire, I would make it my point to to make sure every young person that I come in contact with got a copy of that book. And and when I when I was exposed to that book in my adulthood, I mean I was already married. Folks, I read that book cover to cover like you'd read a, a, a novel. And I did it in one setting. I remember it, it took me hours, but I, I read every single page. I loved it. Now, back to whenever I was in around 10 or 11 or 9 years old. My Sunday school teacher was not equipped to answer those questions, even from a, from a, from a young child. And instead of dealing with what I said, and I don't, look, he's gone on to his reward. And I believe if I want to see him again, I better live right because I'm sure that he's in paradise. Have no doubt in my mind. And I bear him no ill will. And that's why I'm not mentioning his name. Because I probably was a little bit smart aleck and probably needed my mouth mashed, quite frankly. But he was probably way more patient with me than I deserve. But he, he told the class and said, listen, Tony is an example of a young person who has lost their faith. Don't be like Tony. And that did something to me. Now, I, I went up years later, I apostatized, and that's not why. But my point is, to, to Jason Goldtrap's message, you know, 18 years of Sunday school can be obliterated by 10 minutes of a lecture. I mean, that's, I, he might have been being hyperbolic, but I don't think that's actually hyperbolic. In fact, there's a proverb. Um, hold on a second, I'll tell you to it. He that is first in his cause. Proverbs eighteen seventeen, He that is first in his own cause seemeth just but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. What happens is um, no, no adult in my family had studied enough to be able to debunk evolution and the explanation of dinosaurs and stuff like that. And so the thing that I heard first that made the most sense to me was the evolutionary theory. The evolution hypothesis. I heard I heard a lecture recently on YouTube by Guy N. Woods. He was doing an open forum, and he was calling it the evolution hypothesis. And I think we ought to normalize that evolution theory or evolution hypothesis. I don't even know if evolution theory. Maybe I got to look at my scientific method again. Um, I think first you form a hypothesis, then you test it. And once you replicate it and you test it, then it becomes a theory or you observe it in nature and it becomes a theory. But I could have those backwards. But anyway, um, I like the sound of evolution hypothesis. But so what I heard first, well, boom, I got it. Evolution sounds good. And then when I went to my Sunday school teacher, who is supposed to be in just as much authority in my life as the 
uh, teacher at school, the Sunday school teacher failed the test. Now, an adult would say, well, that just means the Sunday school teacher didn't know. But in my mind, that means evolution is true and the Bible's false. That's one of the things I love about this channel. You help me understand how to argue aspects biblically. Man, that really, I appreciate that. That's, that's, again, that's high praise. I really like that. So, <clears throat> so and again, I, I, I want to reiterate, I bear this man no ill will. I mean, he was a part of my life up until he died. Um, he, he died yeah, not too long ago. Not, I bet it's been 10 years, probably. No, it's not. It's been more than 10 years because he died before I went off to school. Anyway, all that to get to, 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 to reiterate uh, Jason Goldtrap's uh, comment about 18 years of Sunday school can be ruined in a 10-minute lecture, and it absolutely can. So we have to know our audience. We have to equip our people to be able to deal with folks logically that do not believe that the Bible is the authority. I have one full set of World Book Encyclopedia and all but the F of another. My youngest son read them constantly. John Gary Williams was a blessing to me in teaching about the age of the world, etc. The book of Job shows that dinosaurs and man lived at the same time. Absolutely. And did you know that the first telegraph or telephone, it's in Job. There's, there's a Job is being asked by God if he can send, form, send forth the lightnings, which electricity, that they may go and say, here I am, or hello, or something like that. Very, it's very neat. There's, there's all kinds of scientific foreknowledge in the Bible, and I believe that's one of them. Anyway, all right, back to the podcast. So, we have to outfit our people to take two different approaches to evangelism because you're going to go up and down the road and meet people and the odds of you meeting someone that does not believe the Bible is the inspired word of God today is orders of magnitude greater than finding somebody 50 years ago that did not believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I, I, I meet them all the time. You just got to learn to deal with that. Now, how did Paul deal with it? Well, you know, we know how Paul dealt with it. Um, in fact, I tell you what, let's just go, let's go read Acts chapter 17 and, and the sermon there. We're not going to read the sermon in Acts chapter 2. That's just a sermon that, hey, Jesus is the Son of God and you crucified him. Joel chapter 2, this is that about which Joel spoke. Your sons and daughters, the, the, uh, in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will dream dreams. Your old man will prophesy upon the servants of the handmaids. Will I pour out of my spirit? And all that good stuff. All right. The same Jesus that you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Now, verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. I'm just going to read the sermon here. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found one with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, 
neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth through all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and then and hath and hath determined their times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think about the Godhead as likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's design. And the times of this ignorant God's winked at, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, they, they always, tell, always tell me it's a fairy tale. Brandon Wild. Yeah, my response to that is, well, if it's a fairy tale, then why do you care if I believe it? Because the people that, that say it's a fairy tale, they're usually pretty militant. <laughs> but it, if you're talking to somebody that's your friend and they say, well, listen, you know, you're a Christian, that's fine, but I'm not going to believe that. It's a fairy tale. You know, the response could be, well, okay, so what? tell me what makes it a fairy tale and then see if you can get them like, well, here's my objections. Well, the very first book, God created the heavens of the earth. Well, that's that doesn't explain how we got man. Well, I, I put four. I, that doesn't explain we got man. That doesn't explain how we, you know, the origin of species or anything like that. My suggestion is, you know, with what, take them to Acts chapter 17. You know, the cosmological argument um, Paul begins his sermon. He directly addresses the Athenians' uh, religious sen uh, sensibilities, and he asserts the existence of a creator God. The folks who mock Christianity are absolutely silent on Islam. Yeah, and other and other religions. People typically don't fight against what they do not perceive to be a threat. If they, if it's a fairy tale, why do they care so much? Anyway, so yeah, my, my suggestion is familiarize yourself with, um, with these logical arguments for the existence of God. And this is the little new Testament that I've used for years. Um, I took in my little new Testament in Acts chapter 17. And I don't know if you can see that, but can you see the, the letters that I wrote in the margin. So the cosmological argument for the existence of God, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing as he is Lord of heaven and earth, he dwells not in temple made with hands. So he's the uncaused first cause. The ontological argument, verse 25, he's not worshiped with men's hands. He doesn't need anything. He gives to everybody life, breath, and being. He gives everybody life and breath, gives all things, life, and breath, okay? That's the ontological argument for the existence of God. There is no entity greater than the entity of which you can conceive than the entity that gives to all things life and breath. So if you're in the first century and you're talking to somebody, look, well, Zeus, Zeus, you know, why don't you worship Zeus? Well, is Zeus alive? Yes, yes, he is. Well, the God I worship is, gave Zeus his life. So why would you worship Zeus? Well, yeah, but Zoroastrianism. Well, we got this Zoroastrianism, all that. 
Yeah, my God gave those things life if they even exist. I don't think they exist, but, you know, why, why would I worship something that's less than the entity that gave everything life and breath and cannot be contained in this realm of existence? Because he's outside of it. That's the ontological argument for the existence of God. Uh, ontology is the study of existence and being. Um, the teleological argument for the existence of God. And it's made of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on the earth, on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That's a tele that's an argument from design and purpose. We're created with a design and purpose. We can ascertain it. So that's an argument for the existence of a divine being that created us. The religious argument that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, though he be not far from every one of us. That's a religious argument. Uh, Blase Pascal, every individual has a deep cavernous hole in the center of his chest. It can only be filled with God. And mankind sure tries to fill it up with a lot of maladaptive things. Fill it up with God and you'll be fine. So that's, again, that doesn't prove anything, but it's an argument to show it's reasonable to consider the existence of an all-powerful being. And then finally, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's it. And, and yeah, if there are gods... God allows them to be. Incidentally, there's a there's a term called henotheism. And in the first century, there would have been, I would say that there are henotheists today. In the first century, Paul in 1 Corinthians dealt with henotheism. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, think about what Paul says or writes. Knowledge puffs up but love edifies. Now, you and I, we have knowledge. We know that the idol is nothing. Why in the world has that kicked on? Oh, well. Um, so hopefully, hopefully it doesn't distract too much. So knowledge puffs up, love edifies, love edifies. You and I, we have the knowledge that the idol will say Zeus, he's nothing. But not everybody has this knowledge. So you need to be careful how you treat them and how you act. Because what if you go there and eat the meat that's been offered to idols? Well, you might, you might cause a brother who believes that that idol is something to stumble. You might cause him to violate his own conscience. And if you, if you violate your own conscience you will be in sin as surely as if you violate one of God's laws. Well, that's, henotheism is not mentioned in the Bible, but these people in Corinth that were, that were converted out of, the, out of the hedonistic pantheon of gods that the world understood to be existential at the time, they didn't believe that those gods winked out of existence, many of them. They just understood that, well, I'm worshiping the supreme God and all these other lesser gods are not worthy of my worship because they're created beings, so I'm going to worship the supreme God. And you don't need to be worshiping 
Bacchus. You don't need to be worshiping Dionysius. You don't need to be worshiping whatever, Zeus. So, yeah, if there are gods, then God's, God allows them to be. But again, I mean, you, you, you and I both know there's no such thing as Zeus. There's no such thing as Dionysius. There's no such thing as Bacchus. There's no such thing as, as, as I've run out of gods. Anyway, um, let me get this comment by Terry Crooks. There are these people who read the scriptures, but here's the thing. They don't quite get what's going on. Now picture this. I know a bunch of super educated people, like they've got masters and doctoral degrees hanging on their walls, but guess what? Even they struggle with understanding the scriptures. Here's the scoop on their arguments. They're, they're not convinced that suicide is a no-no. When they see that verse in Matthew 5, 3, they're like, oh, it's all about being poor. Then there's this whole debate about God messing with Pharaoh's mind so he wouldn't let the Israelites go. And get this, they're all about forgiveness even if the other person don't say sorry. Yeah, and I, th those are people that have educated themselves beyond their ability to reason. And, and Terry, I know that you've asked questions in the live streams and stuff dealing with all this, and, and, and I mean, it's just, I don't think you're ever not going to deal with that issue. I, I think it's just one of those things. I think your only comfort is going to be, hey, here's the truth. If you got a set of ears, it's for you, and you, you, you folks go and stand or fall before God on the day of judgment. I can't do nothing for you. I know that might not be very comforting. Yeah, I'm just going to stop there. I know that might not be very comforting, but hopefully it's of some comfort. So back to the text in Acts 17. So you got the religious, now the moral argument for the existence of God. Um, for in him we live and move and have our being. Adolf Hitler led the German nation during World War II, committing all manner of atrocity towards a certain population of humanity. And after that war, the leaders of that nation, they cried, we, you can't try us. We didn't do anything wrong. We were following the sovereign law, the, 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 the laws of our sovereign nation, to which the world at the time responded, there is a higher law, the law of God that you violated. And so on the world scene, Nuremberg trials, those Nazi murderers were found guilty. They didn't murder Nazis. They murdered the Jewish people, but they were Nazis who were also murderers. Hey, hey, Alabama, they worship the created, not the creator. You got that right. All right. So the moral argument, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. If you enjoy safety on this earth, it's because of the morality of God. I, I love watching videos of street preachers. And look, I fully understand that a lot of these men, well, 99.999% of these men that are out there on the streets, they're, they, they're not going to teach the gospel that Peter taught. They're not going to teach the gospel that Paul taught. 
But they, they get into these arguments with these young people about the existence of God. Because the first step in, in, in claiming the Bible is true is to convince somebody that God is. All right? Yeah, God-given rights as well. You know, we have a right. In the United States, some people foolishly think in the United States, well, the Constitution gives us the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of assembly, the right to self-defense, to keep and bear arms. Constitution does not give those rights. The Constitution enshrines and recognizes those God-given rights. And if you'll read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, you will find that language. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They are endowed from their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, what are those rights? Well, the ones that we recognized is freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to gather, freedom to peaceably assemble, the freedom to keep and bear arms, the freedom to defend oneself, all that good stuff. Yeah, some, some cry, the same cry from the abortion activists. Yes, yeah, the God doesn't give us those rights. The Constitution does, and we can change the Constitution. You got that right. Um, yeah, it ensures those rights against the government. Yes. And Brandon Wilde, absolutely. The forefathers were godly men. Neil Abbott says, Justin Jask, bleh, Justice Jackson was the prosecutor at Nuremberg. He argues the Nazis violated the law that was be a, a law that was beyond the provincial and the transient. That is awesome. And I tell you, man, where I learned about the Nuremberg trials and all of that was actually from watching the debate between Thomas B. Warren and Anthony Flew. And sadly, that 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 debate is no longer on YouTube in one piece. You it it's broken up into it's broken up into parts. But it was uploaded just in one solid piece. I would love to have that uh, again. But anyway, um, okay, good comments. Y'all, I ain't even, let, let's just get back to this. Um, so you got the moral argument. We've got that down. Now, the aesthetic argument. Let, I'm going to read what I wrote about the aesthetic argument. This is just a short segment of this article, but I'm going to read it verbatim. Paul concludes, and this is verse 29, for as much, well, and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think about the Godhead as likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's design. So what does that mean, the aesthetic argument? Um, Terry Crooks, honestly, I got it, Brother Tony. It's like a never-ending battle, uh, duking it out with these folks. I know I'm not alone, even though it's stressful. God's got my back. We'll tackle this together. No defeat in sight. Thank you for that. I'm, I, I don't know why, but I was just feeling rather hopeless and empty because of your struggle. And I know you struggle and, uh, I'm, I'm listen, you, you may be the only bright shining light in those people's lives. There's no telling how far they'd go off the deep end. If it weren't for you stemming the flow. So 
Who knows how they're going to fare before God on the day of judgment, but quite frankly, that's not your business. You got to make sure you're fair, you fare well on the day of judgment. You want to hear well done, good and faithful servant, and you pray to your God Almighty that they hear well done, good and faithful servant. But that's not your priority. Your priority is yourself. Anyway, I digress. Um, all right, I'm going to read this segment that I wrote. Paul concludes by admonishing the Athenians, saying, "For as much we, for as much then as we are the offspring of God." We ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Here, Paul introduces an idea that can be associated with the aesthetic argument for the existence of God. This argument posits that, a hum- that the human appreciation for beauty, art, and aesthetic value points to a creator who endowed humans with these sensibilities. Humans are unique among the animals. In their, from an evolutionary standpoint, in their capacity for abstract thought, creativity, and appreciation for beauty. According to Paul, the art and symbols that humans create to represent the divine, although crafted from precious materials, are inadequate to capture God's presence, or God's essence, rather. The very fact that humans can appreciate abstract qualities like beauty and attempt to manifest it in art suggest a deeper divine origin for such sensibilities. Paul argues that humans, being the offspring of God, are imbued with attributes that, re- that reflect the divine creator. The artistic and aesthetic uh, faculties in humans are not mere biological traits, but indicators of a higher order of existence pointing toward God as the ultimate source. Folks, t- you, you, who, who is the greatest female? Who is the, um, hold on a second, F- very famous female artist. All right. We're going to say, uh, Frida Kahlo, that I Googled and and it just come up. Frida, K-A-H-L-O, all right? So Vincent Van Gogh could marry Frida Kahlo and they could make 197, 240 babies. And if you take all of those babies away from them, there is no biology that is passed on from Vincent Van Gogh and Frida Kahlo to make all those children grow up to be artists and appreciate art. That is a metaphysical thing. That is a nurture thing. Folks, the very fact that human beings appreciate the aesthetic, appreciate beauty, contemplate existence, is an argument that suggests it is more reasonable to believe that a divine entity endowed us with that than he didn't or she. I'm not saying God is female. I'm just saying from the perspective of the argument. In other words, none of these arguments prove anything. They just show it is more reasonable 
to believe in the existence of God than to not. All right. About got myself in trouble. Folks will leave the, well, yeah, Tom, I was listening to the podcast from Tony, and he said God's a woman. Well, no, that was a slip of the tongue. All right. Hello, Connie Barton. It's good to see you. Now, what am I doing here? I wanted to go. Oh, yeah. Let, let me let me finish up real quick with some. So, we, we, so we've looked at Paul's letter to Mars Hill, or Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, and we've looked at the differences between uh, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 2, Peter said, here's the scriptures, and here's what the scriptures mean. So you need to repent, be baptized, so on and so forth. Paul says, God exists. You're already worshiping him. You need to repent. God calls all men to repent. And then, of course, people did, and some of them obeyed the gospel. They're baptized into Christ. Well, let's talk about some application for modern evangelism in just a few short minutes. So drawing from Peter and Paul's examples, we can glean several principles for effective evangelism today especially in settings where the Bible's inspiration and authority might not be immediately recognized. Number one, understand your audience. Assess the spiritual and cultural background of those you're engaging with. Are they familiar with biblical concepts, or do they come from a more secular or pluralistic background? Adjust your approach accordingly. Number two, find common ground. Listen, you're going to be on opposite sides of the ditch from these folks Soon enough. So start with common ground. Like Paul references the unknown God, identify elements within your audience's worldview that can serve as a bridge to the gospel. This could be a universal question about purpose, morality, the afterlife. I know what some, one of my teachers in school does. Uh, he, he'll, he'll be checking out at a grocery store or something like that, and he'll ask the cashier. He'll say, do you believe that there's more people going to heaven or going to hell than there is going to heaven? Well, she might say, well, I don't even know. Well, you know, the Bible has an answer to that. Would you be interested in knowing the answer? Well, yeah, kind of. Oh, that's awesome. You know, you, we could, we could have a Bible study. Would you like to have it? Would you like to, uh, Meet for a Bible study on Thursday at 6 or Friday at noon. You know, nothing wrong with that. So find common ground. Employ reason and logic. And that that's what the bulk of this, converse, this, this podcast today was about. I said conversation. Well, it's like conversation, wasn't it? Anyway, in a post-Christian society, reasoning from creation, moral law, and, or the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection can pave the way for a discussion about the Bible's message. Absolutely. And, you know, you can lean into it like, hey, listen, I can see why you don't believe in God. I get it. But have you ever considered and then used that kind of approach, you know? Now, this is a little controversial. Share personal testimonies. Whenever I was growing up, oh, we can't, witnessing is wrong, and, and, and we don't stand up in the church and testify. Well, now there's truth to that. About not there, There's no point in the liturgical service of the Lord's church 
should you have a segment in that service for people, random people to stand up and testify. But in your day-to-day walk, I mean, look, I'm, th- I'm trying to think. Of, I, I, my mind is blank. I, I had a good example, of illustration lined up. There's a restaurant here, a Chinese restaurant called House of Lamb, L-A-M. Labeth and I have eaten there one time. It's, it's rather expensive as far as Chinese restaurants go, but you know what? Everything's expensive here. Um, if you came to here and you said, you know, I want to go out to eat, but where you want to go eat? Well, I want to go to McDonald's and I don't want to go to McDonald's, but I ask you, like, well, why do you want to go to McDonald's? Well, cause it's the only thing I really know. And I like McDonald's and what well, is it? A money issue? No, I got, got more money increases. Well, let me tell you about the house of lamb. Now, how would you talk somebody into going to your favorite restaurant? you would tell them how it affected you. While we were there, we got really good service. The food came out in a timely manner. The food was well-prepared, well-seasoned. Everything was all good, and we loved it so much, and we have a good experience every time. Folks, that's testifying. That's, quote-unquote, witnessing. Listen, I want you to be a Christian. Well, why should I be a Christian? Oh, well, let me tell you something. Before I was a Christian, I was... I was a hellion. You wouldn't have liked me. But since I became a Christian and I started living for God and I started putting God first, I love my wife more. I'm a better parent to my children. I'm a better friend. I'm a better employee at work. It's given my life purpose and meaning beyond the day-to-day 9-to-5 grind or 10-to-10 or whatever shift you work. It's just... I have an all-around better life. One person, since I've been up here, asked me why I was a Christian. And I said, because living according to this Bible is the best way to live. And I would live according to this Bible regardless of whether or not it's true. Now, I don't believe it's false. I believe it's 100% true. But I would still live according to the Scriptures if they weren't true because it's, it's objectively a better way to live. Folks, that's personal testimonies, personal stories of transformational and, 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 uh, and encounters with God can transcend intellectual barriers, providing a tangible example of the gospel's power. Now, I don't mean that in some kind of strange, occult, magic kind of, oh, I came into contact with God. No, but what I mean is, how do, how do I illustrate this? There have been things in my life that have worked out in certain ways that can only be chalked up to God. Can I prove it in a court of law? No. It's kind of like Paul and Onesimus. Paul wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, and he says, hey, it could be that you lost him for a season, to have him return for an eternity, not just as a slave, but as a brother. It could have been God's will that that happened. It could have been God working in providence. You're right, but Paul didn't know for sure. I think about 
Esther. Mordecai told Esther, you need to go before the king and see if you can't mitigate this genocide that's come upon us. And Esther said, I can't go before the king. He hasn't invited me. And if I go before the king without him inviting me, he could kill me. If he does something with his scepter, then I'll die. Or if he does something different with his scepter, I'm allowed to come in. I think if he lifts his scepter, she's allowed to come in. If she leaves it, if he leaves it down, she'll die. I can't remember. Go read Esther. Anyway, Mordecai says, uh, hey, don't think that you and your house will escape this calamity that's coming. Deliverance will come. But it could come from another source. And if it comes from another source, then you're not going to escape. It could be that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That that's a nod, that's a tipped hat to providence. That's a that's a testimony. That's an encounter with God, folks. And and, and God is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. But he's on every page. Esther and Mordecai both encountered God, but yet God is never mentioned. That's what I mean by that. So you can look back at something in your life where you're like, you know what? I've encountered God. Connie Barden says, I had several changes in my work career, and each time I prayed before making a change for guidance and making the correct one, each time I made a change, it turned out for the better. I believe that's God's providence. That's what I'm talking about, folks. Share your personal testimonies. Now, the the final one, and this is going to be weird, and I'm going to have to mitigate this. Introduce Scripture gradually. Listen, for those skeptical of the Bible's authority, start with the life and teaching of Jesus. Start with his historical impact, ethical teachings, and the claims of his divinity. It can intrigue people and lead to a deeper exploration, okay? Now, that doesn't mean, all right, go to Ephesians chapter 6. What is this right here called? What's this Bible called? It's called the sword of the Spirit. It's the only offensive thing in your panoply. It's the only offensive thing. You've got the helmet of salvation, the breastplate, or the breastplate of um salvation no the girdle of hold on a second the breastplate of salvation i started at the wrong end and it's messed me up and now i'm so discombobulated in my brain i can't do it by memory are you ready verse 11 put on the whole armor of god for we wrestle not against flesh and blood wherefore verse 13 Take to you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, your breastplate of righteousness, I should have listened to me in the first place, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Now, think about your, your, you've got your helmet of salvation, your breastplate of righteousness, your breastplate of righteousness, your shield of faith, your shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and then you've got your sword. And then when you walk up to somebody and you're going to fight, you say, well, hey, we're going to fight. 
And the person says, well, that's fine, but I don't believe your sword is powerful. Oh, okay. Well, let me put my sword up and not use it in the fight. Why would you sheathe your most powerful weapon just because your opponent doesn't believe in its ability to perform? I'm not saying when you talk to somebody who's an atheist that you throw the Bible out the window. Don't sheathe your most powerful weapon. But you don't go and say, well, you you got to obey the gospel. Why? Well, because he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes and not shall be damned. Because in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon all those who know not God and will not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, that's not going to mean anything to them. So introduce scripture gradually. Hey, listen, man, you, you, you know, Jesus died for you. Man, that doesn't even make sense. Well, well, how do you know Jesus died for me? Well, we have these four accounts. Yeah, but can you even trust what they say? Ah, yes, actually, you can. <laughs> and then you can have that conversation. Never thought of the Bible as an offensive playbook, but that's a good analogy. Absolutely, it's, it's the offense. Yeah, and, and it's your sword. Don't sheathe your sword just because somebody doesn't believe it can cut them. Paul didn't quote scripture in Athens, but his sermon is laced with scriptural thoughts. It's a perfect template for talking to people who don't know the Bible. Absolutely. Incidentally, um, I, what would it hurt to read it? That's not a bad approach. Hey, you know, if, it, if it's absolutely false like you claim, why don't you read it and find the places in it that you, that you think are false that can't be true and then let's come back next week to this same coffee shop and let's drink some coffee and talk about it. What's wrong with that? Look, I think maybe, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this, so when I say we, turn the W upside down and you'll get a me. I think we in this modern age are too used to things happening fast. When I meet somebody, hey, what's up? My name's Tony. I'm a Christian. I'm with Riverview Church of Christ. How are you doing? Would you like to study the Bible? Okay, well, let's go get baptized. We can set the baptistry up and fill it and drain it in all around three hours, and, and you'll be a washed, saved individual. How about it? Acts, Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, 16, 1 Peter 3.15, or 1 Peter 3.21. Uh, I feel like that's kind of the way we evangelize sometimes. Of course, that, that's absurd. It's very hyperbolic, but it kind of comes off that way, doesn't it? Just build a relationship. Introduce these things gradually, or else you'll overwhelm somebody and you'll absolutely shut them down. I'm going to read the, um, the conclusion, the very last paragraph. Here's just a couple of sentences, and, it, and, it, and it's to Neil Abbott's point about how something cannot mention a book, chapter, and verse, but you know it's Scripture. As we move forward in our evangelistic efforts, let us do so with a spirit of humility and love, always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, yet doing so with gentleness and respect. In this way, we honor the legacy of the apostles and continue their mission in a world desperately in need of the gospel. As I was reading, and well, obviously I wrote it, but now as I've, re as I've read it out loud again, 
I counted three or four passages of scripture that are alluded to in that verse that I did not cite. Was I wrong for not citing them? Well, I don't think so. Could be wrong, but all right. Um, Many years ago, I was working a temp job. One of my co-workers was an atheist. We went to lunch and he asked, why are you a Christian? I replied, would you jump on a grenade to save a room full of children? Of course. What if it was a room full of adults you didn't know? Would you die for the strangers? Well, yeah. Good answer. What about me? Would you die for me? He looked up, he looked me up and down and said, well, you seem to be a decent person. Hmm. Yeah, I'd die for you. Well, thank you. And now you're in a room with Saddam Hussein. Gold trap, you're dating yourself, buddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I, could, I shouldn't have, I probably should have jabbed you there, but you're dating yourself. Um, thank you. And now you see you're in a room with Saddam Hussein. Would you die for Saddam Hussein? Are you crazy? Of course not. Well, Jesus did. He was surprised by that answer. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why I'm a Christian. Yeah, perfectly, perfectly, perfectly good. Perfectly good uh, conversation there. Hopefully it made an impact on him. Um, I remember the first time I heard something to that effect, it really affected me deeply. And it, I don't know, I don't know the guy's last name, but his first name was Odie. And, uh, what's up, Brandon Myers? Good to see you. And, uh, he was, he was presiding over the Lord's supper and it's tradition for the folks, for, for the man that presides over the Lord's supper to read a scripture and to say a few thoughts. And he got up there and he said, you know, all the scriptures, let me just give you a thought experiment. Would you die for your children? Yes. Yes, I would. Would you die for your spouse? Yes. Would you die for some of your family members? Well, yes. Would you die for someone who hated you and despitefully used you? That's way more difficult. I don't know if I would. But Jesus did. And Jesus died for us. And this blood is shed so that we can be in fellowship with him and God or God through him. I can't remember exactly what he said a long time ago. I was in high school. And, of course, he said, so as you partake of this bread and this fruit of the vine today, I want you to think about that and think about how that while you were yet sinners, while you were rebellious, and harming Jesus, he died for you. I see you, not sure how you see me, just joining in, all is going well. Yes, all is going well. So uh, the reason I see you is because of the comment. Um, you said, what up? And it populated on my chat aggregate with Restream. Um, Valletta Rem says, amen. Well, thank you for that. Okay, so. That's the point, though. You you don't you don't and and think about that. Odie's illustration, incidentally, that I ripped off and I use very often. That is a direct conclusion that one would draw 
based on Romans 5.8. Bear with me. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Odie didn't have to didn't have to tell that thought experiment and say Romans five eight, but Romans five eight is backed is, is Romans five eight is baked into that pie. So when you're when you're when you're talking to someone and practicing evangelism, be cognizant, be scriptural. Don't don't sheathe your sword just because they don't believe your sword is your sword is sharp. But don't rattle off a bunch of book, chapter, and verse, and this, that, and the other, because it's just gonna, just gonna overwhelm folks. We're at an hour and twenty-one minutes. I think I'm done. I was probably done twenty minutes ago, but I tend to ramble on. I really appreciate every one of you on this live stream. I hope that you go to Substack and subscribe. Uh, look, we got an article coming out tomorrow morning. Uh, I, I typically put my articles. I drop them at like five o'clock my time. And my time is two hours faster than Central Standard Time. So it's like three, it's like the middle of the night for some of you. But um, Robert Leedy, a guy, a preacher from one of the Carolinas, I can't remember. But anyway, he, um, he wrote an article for me about what does the Bible say about judging. And I'm, boy, I appreciate it. And it's a good article. And I hope you'll subscribe for free on Substack. And then uh, you'll get an email notification of when that article drops tomorrow. Uh, where do I find your schedules? Valletta, sadly, there, I, don't, I don't have a quote-unquote schedule online. But what I've been very, very adamant about is every day at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, I try my best to go live. with, well, and, and usually it's within a few minutes, like, because if, if if I schedule a Facebook Live for for ten o'clock Central Standard Time, I'm sometimes I might not get there till twelve oh five. Okay, but if I don't if 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 it goes longer than that, like to twelve oh eight, twelve oh eight, they just cancel the live stream. I'm not superstitious and I don't participate in the occult, but not not not. I have been really, really consistent for the last few months. And I think I've got my schedule set and oriented where even if I have to do something, I can go, uh, I can go into the archives and I can get an old video from years ago and I can do a rerun. So Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 Eastern, I go live. I ought to shoot for just going live for an hour, but you can see we've been today. We've been about an hour and 23 minutes. Uh, so to answer your question, there's not really a place that you can go find my schedule, but um, be sure and be sure and like, and subscribe, uh, follow the uh, Christianity now Facebook page. Um, you can, you can go to the Christianity now YouTube uh, Christianity now Facebook group and and go go join that group because I stream I stream on my personal profile 
I stream on Cogitations. I stream on Christianity Now page. I stream in Christianity Now group. I even stream on Twitter at First Chronicles 1232. And then Christianity Now streams on YouTube, which if you want to, if you, I don't know if you do anything on YouTube, Valletta, but YouTube seems to be a more consistent platform for live streams. But I stream on YouTube as well. Um, Philip S. Carmen, thank you so much. I enjoyed today's chat so much. Uh, learned a lot. Thank you. And listen, you folks are the ones that make the live stream whenever you comment, ask questions, and and offer uh, input. Yesterday's replay was great. Man, I, I'm just going to say, wasn't it, though? I, I feel weird saying that because I was part of it, but... Um, I, I had to do some stuff that where I couldn't live stream, but I was able to listen to it. I listened to the whole thing and I don't usually listen to my content. Um, I'll go back and listen to my, my sermons and stuff to critique myself, but a live stream is something I, I don't typically listen to the entire live stream. And, you know, I listened to that whole live stream. And in fact, that's why you got this podcast today was <laughs> because of something that that triggered in that live stream. Anyway, that's all I've got. Look, God bless every one of you. Remember, if you want to support the show monetarily uh, and have access to some stuff, we Saturday morning, Aaron Dotson's first article in a series on Romans is going to drop. And that's going to be for our paid subscribers. Saturday is going to be the day we put out content for paid subscribers. It's not going to be live. Everything's going to be scheduled. So like I may do a video, um, along with Aaron's, um, along with Aaron's article, but for the next several weeks, every Saturday, Aaron's going to drop an article, but it's going to be for the paid subscribers. Okay. Uh, but Monday through Friday, you get one article per day for, for totally free. All right. And uh, I just want to, I, I feel weird about having a paywall, but our supporters monetarily support us. So we want to offer added value. And it's just a weird, weird dart to, to navigate that. Anyway, that's all I've got here. Be sure to, uh, if you like the archive, Podbean, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and TuneIn Radio, just search for Cogitations, Substack. You can do Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Christianity now. And that's all I've got. I'm getting off here. God bless every one of you. This has been Tony Brewer with Cogitations, and we'll catch you on the flip side.